the thought to take monastic ordination is something very precious and the inclination inside of ourselves to do that is something that we should really respect and treasure about ourselves because this sets the foundation for the future Dharma practice that we'll be able to do because ethical conduct is like a ground that we can build the rest of our practice on in a very solid and stable way and so as we're doing this let's keep in mind the kindness of sentient beings who are the objects with which we practice ethical conduct and who support us as we're practicing the path and thus to generate the bodhicitta aspiration for enlightenment for their benefit so today I wanted to talk about the um the qualifications of people who ordain, you know, um, because there are, there are uh, hindrances uh, and people who possess certain hindrances uh, are not permitted to ordain. And then to talk about the qualities of the preceptor and the qualities of the ceremony, you know, because all these things have to be done in a very kosher way. Okay. So there are there are thirteen um, major hindrances and sixteen minor hindrances. This is in the Dharmagupta uh, school. And if you have any of the thirteen hindrances, then you can't ordain in this lifetime. And if you have any of the sixteen minor ones, you can ordain as soon as you've cleared those situations up. Okay. Um, and it's interesting to learn this because you get some idea of the thoughtfulness and compassion um, with which the Buddha set up the Sangha community um, and how he wanted to guide it. So the first uh, obstacle, and, and by the way, when, when you receive ordination, you are questioned about these obstacles before the ordination ceremony, during the ordination ceremony, and so being free of the obstacles is one of the major conditions for actually receiving the, the precepts. Okay, so the first is um, somebody who's committed a parajika. Parajika means defeat. And this is the first class of precepts. So this pertains to if somebody was previously ordained and, and disrobed and then they're applying for ordination again if they committed, you know, a root downfall. So, um, you know, then they can't reordain. Now, what's quite interesting is in terms of, of the monks, the monks can, re, they can ordain seven times, okay, and give their vows back six, you know. The nuns, you have one chance, and you're only allowed to ordain once, and if you disrobe, that's it. Yeah. So actually, this condition doesn't really even apply much to the nuns because 
if you disrobe then, then there's no opportunity to rotate but for the monks there is that opportunity okay then um, the second one is those who have sexually violated a bhikshu or a bhikshuni this is probably more likely for a monk to do rather than a nun to do or this could be done actually as some, somebody who as a lay person before you know doesn't require them to have been previously ordained but if a man has done that before if a woman has done that then you can't ordain then um, the third one is those who have the intention um, their intention of ordination is for personal benefit and so that's called stealing the dharma okay so um, this is somebody who for their own personal benefit they, they put on monastic robes because they want the privileges of and the you know of being a monastic and so they're deceiving the lay people deceiving the sangha so the situation at the time of the Buddha was um, there was one there was a famine in the land and one man um, thought well you know if I'm a monastic then I go on my alms rounds people have so much respect for the monastics I'll get some food so he put on robes and took an alms bowl started collecting alms and when um, he met another one of the Buddhist followers or another mendicant um, that that mendicant questioned him and said who's your preceptor and you know everything like this and the guy couldn't answer and so then it was discovered that he was just an imposter you know trying to do this to get food so then um, it, as they say it became clear that he was stealing the appearance of a monastic and so then the Buddha um, made a rule that, that anybody who does that cannot ordain because yeah. it's very very detrimental of course for the the reputation of the entire Sangha community if somebody is an imposter and does that and, um, and if somebody's kind of cheating lay people you know out of their, a motivation for their own personal benefit but you'd think you know who in the right mind would do this well I mean I, well maybe that's the question I've been in India and I've seen some people who are not in their right mind but they put on robes and they walk around smoking cigarettes and and things like that you know people who have some kind of mental problem or whatever and so you know that kind of thing that disqualifies you from ordination then the, the fourth uh, major hindrance is somebody who uh, had ordained and joined the Sangha and while they were still ordained they left to join another religion okay so um, you know if, if you're ordained as a Buddhist monastic and then without giving back your vows or anything like that you suddenly start going over and take, taking refuge in something else or practicing another religion then, um, then you're not allowed to, to ordain to be ordained um, and the, the point is that here is that that person clearly did not have very stable refuge you know in a very stable world view now if somebody let's say had disrobed and then practiced another religion and then came back it would be a different thing 
Or sometimes there are people who practice another religion who then want to become Buddhist and join the Sangha. And if somebody, you know, is a, is a very earnest practitioner of another religion and then wants to join the Sangha, actually they're on probation for four months. Yeah, when they first ordained, to see if they're stable. Because at the time of the Buddha, you had all these different groups there. You had all these different religious groups and different people, so they would often convert one to the other. And you didn't want somebody who kind of wasn't sure what they believed in. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense. Okay, then the fifth one is um, those who are eunuchs who have had their sexual organs um, removed. The point is there that then they, you don't know whether they will ordain as bhikshus or as bhikshunis. Okay? Um, so the, and then we have a list here of what's called the five, um, uh, sometimes it's translated as the five uh, heinous actions. And these are five very, very negative actions. And it's said that if you uh, commit any of them, then when you die, you immediately go to a lower rebirth. There's no kind of interruption at all of, you know, another rebirth or a long time in the bardo or something like this. So the first one of these five is killing uh, one's father. Okay? And the second one is uh, killing one's mother. Yeah, and the Buddha said that, that uh, for, for these kinds of things, that such a person, even if they did ordain, they can't really develop and, and benefit from the Buddha Dharma as a monastic member. And you can see, you know, somebody who would murder their own father or mother must have an extremely painful, distorted state of mind. What is interesting in this kind of case is, you know, the whole movement towards, towards euthanasia and assisted killing. And I was very surprised once. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, who I hadn't seen in, in a while, we met and we were talking, and she was telling me how her father had been very, very ill and terminally ill and was in a lot of pain, and he requested help to commit suicide. And... She arranged to get the pills and everything for him to OD on. And I thought, wow, you know, that's kind of a modern day example of, of this. Um, you know, she did it with what she thought was compassion, but it, it's still, you know, you don't know where somebody's going to be reborn and what's going to happen to them. So, of course, I didn't say to her, do you know you did? That's why she, you know. The eighth obstacle, which is the third of the five heinous actions, are those who've killed an arhat. So clearly, you know, somebody's a liberated being and then you kill them. That's, you know, not so good. Yeah. Um, then somebody who's ruined the harmony of the Sangha by causing schism. So an example of this happened at the time of the Buddha. There was his cousin, Devadatta, who, you know, since they were kids, was always like, contentious and com- competitive with the Buddha and he uh, he wanted to be the leader of the Sangha so he said oh the Buddha is, you know he's too loose and he, he had all these uh, other rules that would make the Sangha much more ascetic and he converted you know many of the, the monks over to, to follow him and so it just put the whole Sangha community in disarray because 
you know, they're supposed to be followers of one teacher, the Buddha, and keep one set of precepts and function harmoniously. And here, you know, splitting them into different groups under different leaders. And um, so somebody who's done that isn't allowed to ordain. And then the tenth one, and the last of the five heinous actions, is, is somebody who has uh, wounded the Buddha or shed the Buddha's blood. Again, clearly, you know, somebody who in that kind of mental state is going to harm the Buddha is, you know, not good for them to ordain. It it wouldn't benefit them. Then um, number 11 is those who are not human beings. And number 12 is those who are animals. And the story behind this is there was one uh, Naga. A Naga is a kind of serpent-like creature that... uh, Often they often live in trees or near water or whatever, and they have the ability to change into different forms. So there was one Naga who was like so unhappy being a Naga. He really didn't want to be one, and he thought, well, what what would happen if I joined the Sangha and then I could create some virtuous karma and you know get me out of this Naga rebirth? So he appeared as a young man and then you know went forth and and ordained. And the thing is that Nagas, um, if, they, if they lose their, their kind of mindfulness, or if they fall asleep without a certain kind of mindfulness, then they will revert back to their old forms. So it might have been appearing as a human being, but if he, he slept and didn't keep his mindfulness, he would revert to being a Naga. So that's what happened. He was, you know, meditating in a cave and went to sleep. And then another monk came in and just saw the cave filled with the Naga and got super freaked out. And, you know, and then they figured out it was a Naga who had slept without this mindfulness. And so then they said, Nagas, you know, you have to actually be a human being to ordain. You can't be a, uh, a non-human being, a Naga or a spirit or something like that appearing. Okay. Then 13 is those who are hermaphrodites, who have both male and female organs. And um, the, the difficulty with this is that then you, you don't know whether they get the bhikshu or the bhikshuni vows, you know, because they're, they're one, one order or the other, just nothing in between. Okay, so um, from those 13, there are four major kind of points that we see for the, how the Buddha is uh, guiding. Is one is that the person's intention um, to ordain must be very pure. So they're not doing it for personal gain, worldly benefit, um, you know, or anything like that. They should be doing it really because they're seeking liberation. And then the second is that a person's gender must be specific. So they must have, you know, kind of normal sexual organs of either male or female. Um, The third is that they must not have done any kind of really negative action because that kind of karma would so cloud the mind that it would be difficult for the person to to really benefit. Uh, You know, of course, they can still practice the dharma to benefit from the ordination. And then... um, the person must be able to practice the Dharma and receive its benefits. So Nagas, animals, you know, appearing as human beings, they, they can't do that. Okay, so anybody with those kind of, of uh, uh, obstacles can't ordain in this life. And then there's 16 minor hindrances. 
and you can't ordain if you have one of these um, until it's, it's resolved. Okay. So the first one is being a slave. Now, of course, thank goodness we don't have slaves anymore. At the time of the Buddha, they did. And what happened is that um, one slave joined the, the Sangha to escape the bondage. And one day, when the monk was going on alms round, in the village, his former owner recognized him and said, Ah, you know, you're escaping to the Sangha, and made a big stink about that. And so... Um, uh, you know, accusing the, all the Sangha members of all sorts of things. And so the Buddha said, you know, for that reason, somebody has to, um, you know, kind of settle that issue. Because that's, thank goodness, like not an issue today. Then the second one is being a thief. Okay, so, um, you know, if if somebody is you know is a horrible thief then it's going to be quite dangerous for them in the sangha they're likely to steal things from sangha members and create a lot of negative karma or if they went into society and stole things from the lay people then the sangha would get blamed for it so um, but there's an interesting story the story behind this is that um, there were many there was a big party in Vasali uh And a lot of uh, the women were all wearing all their finery and their ornaments. And the thief came and uh, and stole a lot of the jewelry. And then went and, um, it sounds like it was a woman here, went and shaved her head and put on robes and went to take ordination because the king, uh, King Bimbasara, had said that the monastics were outside of the civil law. You don't arrest any of the monastics. So they joined the Sangha in order to, um, to escape from having to deal with their, with their situation. And so when it was found out that this person was actually a criminal, then again, you know, there was a big uproar and people were saying all the Sangha is criminals and they're thieves and they're going to cheat people and blah, blah, blah. And so and then the Buddha said, you know, if you're a criminal, if you're a thief and you're joining the Sangha for that kind of reason... Um, you know, you have to kind of um, serve your your legal. If you have a sentence or something like that under the law, you have to fulfill that. Yeah. So I've had uh, several inmates write and they say they want to ordain, but you know, technically speaking, if somebody is is you know in the middle of doing a prison sentence, they they can't be ordained until they finish the prison sentence. Then the third one is being in debt. So if somebody has any debts at all, they can't ordain. And you can imagine, you know, what would happen if, um, you know, people were living as monastics at the Abbey with major debts and then the debtors started coming up to the Abbey and saying, you know, we want so-and-so because they owe us money. I mean, it would be very difficult for the whole community, very embarrassing in society. And also I think this is done for the sake of the, of the person themselves because, you know, if you ordain and you have debts, how, how are you going to pay your debts back? You know, if you don't pay them back, then, you, then that's stealing. If you want to pay them back, how are you going to get the money if you're a monastic? Yeah? 
So it's better just, these are like some of these worldly obligations and things, it's better just to clear them all up. So then when you ordain, then your mind is completely free. You're not sitting there thinking, oh, you know, I have these financial obligations and how am I going to get the money together to pay this person and, you know, all that kind of worry that comes from having debts. Very interesting, Reverend Clarissa, who you'll meet next week, she's coming. She's from the Shasta Abbey folks. They don't take the the Prati Moksha vows like we do, but they do have, as a rule of their order, that you can't ordain if you have debts. And she had some debts, and she worked, was it 10 years or something? A really long time. No, I thought it was longer or something. yeah, I thought it was longer, but we can ask her again. But some, you know, incredible amount of time just to repay. You know, I don't know if it was school loans or credit card debts or whatever it is. But in the process of doing that, you know, she had a relationship. She had this. She had that. But she kept herself really focused on, you know, I'm doing this because I eventually want to ordain. And so she actually, you know, completed it and paid it off and then ordained. Yeah, so it made her intention very strong to have to go through that. Okay, then the fourth one, these are the minor hindrances that need to be resolved before ordination is being under the age of 20. And the reason for this is that um, some of the little boys who became bhikshus used to cry at night because they were hungry and they missed their mama and things like that. So they're, you know, if you're very young like that, you can't become a picture. And the, they count the age from the time that you were conceived in your mother's womb. Yeah? So you're almost one year old by the time you're born. <laughs> okay. Then, then there's a series of diseases here that one has to be free of. And it, it is actually not, oh, I'll read the, the diseases, but it's not actually these specific diseases that one has to be free of. It's more that one um, has to be healthy and, have, and has to be free of any severe disease or any kind of um, major injury or um, uh, de- deformation in the body. Something like that. So the, the diseases are scabies, ringworm, carbuncle, um, a disease that makes you emaciated, and being mentally deranged. And the reason for this is at the time of the Buddha, there in Magadha, the central country where the Buddha lived a lot, these diseases were very, very prominent. And there were a lot of people suffering from them. And they went to see a very famous uh, doctor called uh, Jivaka. And he had a, a, you know, Jivaka had made a a promise to attend to the sick Sangha members. So he had to turn these other people away because he had to go attend to the Sangha. So then the other people said, well, what happened if we were were ordained? Then we would get free medical treatment. So then they ordained. And then they, Jivaka took care of them. And then when they were recovered, then they disrobed and went back to their families. And then Jivaka saw them in the street and said, weren't you, know, weren't you the monks that I treated? And then the whole story came out. So, um, again, this is an, an instance of somebody ordaining with an impure motivation, you know, because they want to get the medical 
coverage, you know, that, that the monks get. Now, of course, nowadays, this doesn't really pertain so much. You know, Blue Cross doesn't care what you are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but what it does say is that um, people have to be mentally and physically sound in order to ordain. And I think this is, is an important one. Um, very often in the Tibetan community, they don't check some of these things so well. And the people who are candidates, they don't know what they are, or even if, you know, what these requirements are, and so they don't tell their teachers, the teachers don't ask, even though they're asking in the ceremony. Um, or somehow, a lot of times it gets overlooked. And what it does, especially if there's people with very, um, who are very severely um, deranged, it creates a lot of difficulties for the Sangha. Yeah? Um, like I told you, that one person who had problems who put on robes and was smoking, you know? I mean, she wasn't even a, a nun but that did that. But, you know, I've seen many instances. There was one monk who, who had some difficulties. He had been in prison before. But there's some medic, you know, um, mental difficulties, and he was flashing himself to nuns, you know, which was like really not so cool. And uh, you know, if if the teachers had had checked properly beforehand, you know, somebody he shouldn't have been ordained, you know. So somebody with very severe mental problems who who needs other care that the sangha can't provide. Or also somebody with very a very severe illness or a very severe physical handicap, somebody who is very old and feeble, you know. And so in the in the Chinese tradition they they're quite strict about this. In fact in Venerable Wuyin's temple they won't ordain you over the age of thirty five. You know. Um, because I want people to be young and healthy and, and so on. Because a lot of times what happens is people live their life and then in their old age they figure, you know, I would like to live with a community of people and then when I'm old there's young people to take care of me and I'm not all alone and things like that. And so you would get a lot of people joining, joining the Sangha, old men and old women, just to, you know, have somebody take care of them and... Uh, you know, they think, well, it's good to live in vows in your old age, and it is good to, to do that. But if you have a whole community full of people who are elderly, then all the young people spend, are going to spend all their time taking care of the old ones and the sick ones and the handicapped ones. And so Venerable William, when she was teaching about this, said, you know, it's not for lack of compassion that these people aren't allowed you know, to urging. is they need care that, you know, they need specialized care because of their physical situations that the Sangha really can't provide. And so it's better that, you know, you open, let's say, a nursing home and then people with these injuries and illnesses and, you know, who are feeble or have dementia or are, you know, very weak and old, that they live there and then they get the help they need and then the the younger Sangha members actually have the opportunity to study and practice and gain realizations instead of making the monastery into an old age home. Yeah. So it's it's something, you know, to 
to take into consideration and I'm really thinking about this now as, as the Abbey develops and how many middle-aged people will we allow to ordain and when are we going to say okay that's enough middle-aged people and you know you may really want to and it's great and other than that you have a good thing but for the, the long-term view of the Abbey we really can't you know do that because we have to really take care of the young people and give them a good education so that they can continue to to practice and, and carry on the Dharma into the into the future. Yeah. So a lot of times like in Chinese temples what the, what they'll do instead is the the uh, elderly people will come as lay people. They'll stay in the temple and they'll work in the temple as long as their health is good and then when their health turns bad then they're sent back to their families and their kids or their relatives or whatever who take care of them um, you know and they're not they're not ordained then um, the next one the tenth one is not having obtained permission from one's parents so the Buddha of the Serbian and this is the Buddha ordained his own son Rahula when he was very small and the Buddha's father, King Sudadano, whatever his name was, he was very upset by this. And he said, you know, you, should re- you really need to ask the families before you ordain the, the, their children. So then, um, you know, this, this precept was instituted. There is a provision there, though, that if your family lives more than seven days travel away, then you're allowed to ordain and then you go with a group of monastics to see your family and tell them that you ordained. And I think, you know, in, in general, um, yeah, Venerable William saying that sometimes, you know, they, uh, pe- some people were ordained without their, their family's permission and then the families uh, came back, came to the monastery to take them back. Yeah, so of course you don't want that happening. I heard of a situation like that happening in Taiwan once, not too long ago, where several, you know, a lot of young people ordained, and the parents hadn't been uh, informed, and then the parents were very upset and came to the temple. Okay, so you want to avoid that kind of situation. And I think, you know, for most people, just in terms of your own mental peace, if your parents support your your decision then that just makes your own mind more peaceful and whatever. There's situations, for example, my own, in which, you know, the parents aren't going to, to approve no matter what. And so then you just kind of look at the, the situation and, and see what's best to do in it. Yeah. I think if somebody feels a lot of guilt and regret and uncertitude, and confusion, then it's better for them to wait. But if somebody's very clean, clear, and it looks like it's not going to disturb the ordination, then it could be done. Okay, then the eleventh one is being a royal servant. Okay, so this doesn't mean just, you know, the person who serves the king dinner, but it also uh, includes people in the military, so and, and any kind of civil service position. So if you are in the service of the government you have to complete your term of contract before you can ordain and so again this is done in order to keep peace with the government of the land where the Sangha is living 
Okay, um, and then the twelfth one is not having a bowl and robes or having a bowl and robes that are borrowed. And the story behind this is there was one monk who wanted to ordain. He borrowed bowls and a robe for somebody else, got ordained. Then the person who, who they, the things belonged to said, please return them. He did, and then he didn't have any robes to wear, so he was sitting naked on the street. So Buddha thought that wasn't such a good idea. So you have to have your own robes and, you, and your own alms bowl when you are Jane. Okay. And again, I think this is a nice thing because it makes you, you know, you have to take the time to arrange these things or to sew them or whatever, you know, to either get hand-me-down robes or sew them. So it gives you some time and to think and contemplate and and you know make the preparations for the ordination in the uh, in Japanese Buddhism even though they're not monastics uh, they have to sew their own kesa the the one here which is comparable to our big yellow robe but they have to sew their own okay um, then that was 12 and 13 is um being motivated by defilement, refusing to say your own name during the ordination ceremony. Fourteen is motivated by defilement, refusing to say the name of your preceptor during the ordination ceremony. And fifteen is motivated by defilement, refusing to request ordination. And so the idea here is that you could get somebody who's very arrogant, who says, I'm not going to request ordination, you know. I'm not going to tell my name. I'm not going to tell the name of my preceptor. You know, you, you people are so privileged to have me there. So if somebody has this kind of improper mental attitude, then they shouldn't be ordained. Okay, then 16 is wearing the clothes of lay people or people from other religions or wearing ornaments. Okay, so somebody who, uh, you know, shows up at the... Uh, at the uh, ordination and you know they're wearing lay clothes or they're wearing the robes of somebody from another religion they're wearing jewelry they're not you know you can tell that they haven't they aren't taking serious what they're about to do because they didn't gather, gather the proper robes and bowl and so on to take ordination so with these 16 minor hindrances again there, there's a few major um, points where they can be summarized so the first um, is that before joining the Sangha, you should uh, clearly deal with your relationship to society and not join the Sangha in order to avoid responsibilities. Okay, so somebody who is a debtor, somebody who's in the service of the government, uh, whatever, something like that, they need to fulfill all of their worldly responsibilities before ordaining. And that's for the benefit of the person and for the benefit of the song. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Then the second one is that the person should be sincere in wanting to ordain and learn the Dharma. They shouldn't be arrogant so that they don't say their name and their preceptor's name and request the ordination. The third is that one's garments must be sufficient so that you have a robe and a bowl. You have the basic tools that you need. The fourth is that the intention to ordain is pure. It's not to get free medical treatment or free food or, you know, a place to live when you're old or a support group who will take care of you when you get sick, things like that. 
And then fifth is that one's mature enough, so you have to be at least 20 years old in order to ordain. Uh, and it's specifically in order to endure what, you know, living a monastic life entails, you know, because you need to be in sound physical and mental health to do the kind of work that monastic life entails. And so if somebody isn't, then, you know, it's going to be difficult for them. Okay, and then there's nine specific hindrances for women. But, um, and some of these, it seems to me, you know, if I were selecting candidates, I would also apply to the, to the men. The, the first one I wouldn't necessarily apply is those who are pregnant. You know, the idea being that if, um, you know, if somebody, what happened is, is somebody conceived before they got ordained, got ordained, had the baby as a nun, then the lay people don't know that, then they, they accuse the Bixunis of sleeping around. Now, I would really look at it if there was, you know, a young man who came to me who said, my girlfriend is pregnant, you know, or my wife is pregnant. I would really, you know, look at that situation very closely because, you know, that person so easily could be doing that in order to avoid, avoid responsibility. Yeah, either mental or financial or any other kind of responsibility. Um, second is women who are breastfeeding their babies, again, for the same reason. Third is those who haven't learned and practiced the um, six regulations of the six shamana for two years. The, the idea of those um, are to you know, not only ensure that a woman isn't uh, pregnant, but also that she's mature enough. But here at the Abbey, I think the same thing goes for the men. I think it's good if they keep the novice ordination for two years before taking full ordination. Because it just gives people a chance to, to work into something in a very gradual way. And, you know, and that's why we have the policy at the Abbey. You know, when somebody first comes, they have the five precepts. Then they take the eight precepts and put on the gray and keep that for a period of time. Then after that, they take the novice ordination, keep that for a couple of years, then they take the full ordination. So I found just in my experience working with Western Sangha that it works much better if people do things in a very gradual way. You know, that the people who just kind of jump in um, all at once because they have a very emotional feeling then, you know, the, the, we all know the emotional mind changes, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's better to, I think, go, go, go gradually. Then in, also in terms of women, unmarried women under the age of 20 or those who have been married but are under the age of 12. Okay, so if somebody, again, is under the age of 20, it's the same as before, you can't get married. But what's very interesting is in ancient India, you know, they would marry these young women off when they were children. And if you had been married and then at age 10 took the Shamanarika and Shikshamana, then at age 12 you could become a bhikshuni. Which is, I've never quite figured it out, but that's the way it is. Then the fifth one is prostitutes. And... Um, the reason for this is, you know, at one point a prostitute ordained, and then when she was going on alms round, one of the men that she had slept with, you know, called out, oh, there's the prostitute I slept with. And, you know, of course, that made a big scandal in the sangha. And, 
in, in society, okay? So it says if somebody's a prostitute, then she should go far away from where she used to practice her trade to ordain. Um, women who don't have permissions from their husbands. Uh, in ancient India, the women were first under the, the authority of their fathers, then their husbands, and then their sons. So they needed either the permission of their parents or their husbands before they ordained. Uh, nowadays, our culture, thank goodness, is a bit different. But again, you know, at, at the Abbey, for example, um, like one of the requirements for attending this course is people couldn't be in a long-term relationship. You know? And I wouldn't take somebody who was just ending a relationship and immediately going into ordination because their mind's not stable. They have to go through all the grieving process of ending the relationship, figuring out why it went wrong, figuring out what they want to do, and so on. Uh, so here at the Abbey, again, men and women, you know, I wouldn't take them kind of divorce papers on Monday and your ordination on Tuesday. I don't think that's so wise. Then um, those who are in love with a man and are prone to melancholy and resentment. And again, <laughs> um, I would do the same thing for men, okay? I mean, if there's a man who's in love with a woman and coming and asking for ordination and he's prone to melancholy and resentment and daydreaming about the woman that he left and blah, 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 it's not the right time for him to ordain. Um, then uh, those who lose control of the discharge of urine and excrement I mean clearly they have a physical problem that's going to make it difficult to live as a monastic and then nine is those who have the same outlet, outlet for both urine and excrement and I think that would happen like if a woman had given birth and had had serious tears mm-hmm. something like that So, but now that can be fixed so, um, what we're getting at here, you can see several of the major themes emerging, you know, for why somebody should ordain or shouldn't ordain, and the importance of having a good motivation, the importance of being healthy and being able to do it, the importance of having um, fulfilled all of one's or, or settled all of one's societal commitments. So that after you ordain, you're not going to have these things, you know, nagging after you that you still need to do this or that or the other thing. And so that really helps you so that when you ordain, then you can devote all your attention to being a monastic without thinking, you know, I still need to do that. I still need to fix up this. And I find, you know, like I said, sometimes Tibetan masters, well, they just, you know, they don't they don't screen people very well or whatever and these people ordain and then lots of times afterwards there's a lot of difficulties that that emerge you know especially if somebody has loans and then they need to pay back their loans and then they have to work at a job so they're living in the city so they grow their hair long and they're wearing they're wearing lay clothes to go to their job to pay off their loan you know what they don't have in here but which I would also consider is somebody who's still raising a child because I've had people contact me and you know their llama has given them permission to ordain but they have young children and you know again how are you going to do that you're going to ordain and then 
take care of your young kids and go to work and go to the PTA meetings and, and do all that? No. It's like if you have young children, either you stay and, and raise them yourself or, you know, you give them to another family member or, or whoever who can raise them and give them a proper home. Um, I don't think it's really suitable for Shanga members to be raising children. You know, again, it puts you in that situation where you can't really be a Sangha member because you're being a monastic. But I tell you, I know quite a number of people who, whose teachers have okayed them to ordain. And then it just becomes very confusing because they'll turn up at His Holiness's case. I remember at His, his Holiness's teachings, there was, uh, several years ago I was there, there was one nun who came, she had four kids behind her. You know, and it's like then everybody goes, well, wait a minute, she's a nun, how come she has these kids and they're so young and I, she's just traveling around India with them, aren't they getting an education and how can she be a nun and take care of these four kids and, you know. And so I would say the same for a man, you know. That we had cases in Dharamsala a few years back, one man who came to the ordination, they had a pre-ordination course he didn't know, you know, there's lots of times people who don't know anything about the ordination and they just go and say, I want to ordain. And this man had come to the ordination course and his, his uh, plan was he was going to take ordination and go back home and then continue living with his family and raising his kids. Well, you know, I don't think he's going to make it as a monk doing that. You can't. You know what, you're going to live in the house with, it, with your ex-wife? That doesn't sound like a good idea to me if you're trying to keep celibate, you know, and then live, you know, raising your kids, you, you know, how's, you know, you've got to be one or be the other, you know. If your kids are grown, then it's completely okay because your kids are grown, they're on their own, they're fine, it's, you know, and many people do that, that's fine. But when the kids are young, you know, I think they, they need to be properly cared for or have somebody else properly cared for them. So you see, like the example of Venerable Tenzin Katsha, she wanted to ordain for a long time. She had a young daughter, so she raised her daughter when her daughter was 18 and then off to college or whatever, then she ordained. And so that went very smoothly, you know, both with her daughter's care and, and her ability to be a nun. So I think those are, those are other things that, that need to be, you know, taken care of and taken into consideration. Okay. Any questions so far? Mm-hmm. I, I, this is just, when I was maybe I met a woman who had been a novice, uh, not in one tradition, and then described and went to another tradition and wanted to ordain, and I didn't know it was that a lot. In the, in the Buddhist tradition, yes. she was ordained as a novice in one, just rubbed and went to ordain in the, as a novice in the other one. I think that that's allowed because it's the novice ordination. Although it was interesting when we asked Venerable Yin if women could take the novice ordination again. She said, you know, that has never come up in Taiwan. Usually when somebody disrobes, then that's it. Yeah. But then you get the Westerners who aren't sure who their teacher is, what tradition they're practicing, where they're doing, so they do one thing for a while and then do another thing. So this just creates confusion. Yeah. But I think legally that's probably okay if they know us. Anything else? Not only at the Abbey, you mentioned that there were certain periods on the five three sessions, certain periods on the eight. Do you have guidelines about that time or is that really up to the person? 
Well, for the, yeah, for the five precepts, you know, um, it depends if the person's had the precepts before or has been living in the precepts before. With the eight precepts, we usually say one year, but sometimes it happens that it's a bit short of one year, you know, because having the ordination, getting the people together to having a, have an ordination is not easy. Yeah, so if somebody seems to be doing quite well and it's not quite a year, then it's okay. But, you know, we aim for about a year. With some people, depending upon how they're doing here, it might be longer than a year. You know, maybe they don't feel ready or maybe they feel ready, but, you know, the seniors feel that they need some more training as a novice or as an eight preceptor. Mm -hmm. So both failures can vary. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Then the um, oh, then uh, I think you know the the whole thing about checking for checking one's motivation, some things to make sure if one's really ready to ordain. In preparing for ordination, there's um, some questions there that. Uh, are very thought-provoking. Venerable Lecce wrote some questions. I wrote some questions. I think it's very helpful for people to kind of go through and write out the answers to those Um, because it's just helpful to think about many things because so often in our life, we only look at our life from the viewpoint of the present. You know, we don't see ourselves as a continuity. And so we only think that how I feel in the present is, is... the only thing that's ever going to be. Whereas it's very helpful, I think, to see ourselves at different points in our life and reflect how am I going to feel about being a monastic at this point in my life. And I think that's what was helpful to me when I went back to the States and my parents and grandma were asking me questions. Like my grandma said, you don't have kids and a husband who's going to take care of you when you're old. So then I thought about, okay, well... What's my life going to be like, assuming I live a long life as a nun and I get to be an old person? There's no husband, there's no kids, you know, there's, I don't have a big savings. Who's going to take care of me when I'm old? You know, when, you, when you're young, you very seldom think about that because you think you're going to live forever and you think money kind of falls down from the sky. But it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, when I'm old and I can't work. Yeah, you know, my body and mind don't function properly. I can't work. Um, You know, do I want to have kids in a family who are going to support me? Because if you join the Sangha, you know, you're not going to have your own private health care and and comfort. So how are you going to feel of being an old person without kids, family, that kind of, you know, people who love you and support you and hold your hand when you're, dying in that kind of emotional attachment kind of way Um, or another thing is is to think about well how are you going to feel when you're let's say 35 or 40 and all of your old friends have kids and families and houses and are you going to kind of look and say you know wow I spent all these years being a monastic I don't have a house I don't have a car I don't have kids I don't have a family I don't have anything what did I do with my life and it's quite interesting my my experience has been that 
watching, watching people that one of the critical times for women where they're likely to disrobe is the mid to late 30s because if you're going to have a baby it's now or never and the, the, the same time for the men is like the late 40s because if you're going to have a baby you know as a man usually you know you don't want to be 60 years old and have a a one-year-old, yeah. So these are the times in the life where pe- you know people may have been ordained for a while, and then they hit that time, and then it's like, oh, if I'm on a family, this is it. I better do it now. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's very good before you ordain to think about that. You know, think about being that age, and you know, think about being your parents' age, and and how are you going to feel at that age if you don't have what your parents have now. And what kind of, well, this, this will kind of be part of our discussion group tomorrow, but, you know, what will you be like at, let's say, age 45 if you practice the Dharma? What will you be like if, if you, you know, have a family? What will your life be like? You know, so what do you really aspire to be? If you look down your life, and just depending on your age, what, what do you want to be doing in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years? What kind of person do you want to become? You know, do you want to become like your Dharma teacher? Do you want to become like His Holiness? Do you want to become like your mom or your dad? Do you want to become like one of your friends or, you know, a worldly teacher? Um, One of your, you know, school teachers or college professors or whatever? Whose life do you really look at and, and emulate and say, wow, you know, I want to be like that person? And so I think this thing of looking down the road a bit and seeing how am I really going to feel when I'm that age it can be very, very helpful for seeing, you know, if it's the appropriate time to, to take monastic vows. Now, are you going to get to age 40 and then say, oh, wow, you know, I never climbed Mount Everest. And, you know, now's the time to do it if I'm going to climb Mount Everest. Yeah. Um, you know, people have all sorts of things. We laugh. But people have things in their mind that they've kept there, you know, that I really want to do in my life before I die. And, you know, I really want to go to South America on a cruise or I really want to climb Mount Everest or I really want to, you know, build my dream house, you know. And so it's good to to think, you know, how, how much am I holding on to those dreams? Because if I ordain, those dreams have to be given up. And if I'm holding on to them strongly, maybe it's better I do them now, you know, and and then ordain later. Or maybe it's better uh, I check and see if, if those dreams are really, you know, that important to me. Yeah, because you can spend your whole life also when you're young following those those dreams, and then by the time you get around to ordaining, it's, your memory isn't so good, your health isn't so good, it's more difficult to practice the Dharma. So then you also have to think, you know, when you're young, kind of, well, how do you want to spend your your whole life? And is the Dharma really important? Or, you know, do you have these other things that, that you think are really cool and really important that you feel strongly you need to do? You know, because you don't want to kind of get halfway into middle age and then say, oh, you know, I want to do these things and, you know, return your vows. I mean, it's possible to do that, but it, you know, I don't know psychologically how you feel after that. So, 
often I think good to, to do these kinds of things. I certainly did that, you know. Like I said, the kinds of questions my family asked me really made me do that. And, you know, I looked at my grandma's life and, well, because she said this to me because she really loved me. And, you know, she had a husband and she had two wonderful kids and I used to go to visit it when I was in college. And, you know, my grandpa had died so he wasn't there and her two sons lived, you know, my dad lived like an hour drive away. My uncle lived in another state. She was living alone. You know, when she finally got too old to live alone, she went to uh, an old age home, and they took care of her. And I thought, you know, she had husbands and a kid, but she, kids, but she was still, you know, on her own when she was old. And even if she had moved in with my family, would that have, you know, I mean, my my parents took very very good care of her and everything but would you know so I thought well you know what kind of old person what kind of person do I want to be when I'm old yeah what do I want to have around me and it really made me think you know I want to spend my life practicing dharma and then if I'm old hopefully I'll be able to work with my mind a little bit and and then you know the pain of old age won't be quite so bad because all the done some preparation beforehand um, you know so I was thinking like that and, you know having kids all my friends were having kids you know I had um, when I left to go to India then I came back for one visit and they had all had kids you know most of them had kids then I went back to India and then I came back a few years later then they, most of them were getting divorced you know and so it's very interesting you know kind of you know, because uh, I was thinking, you know, do I want to have kids? What's it like to have kids? Because some people feel very strongly, oh, I really need a child because that child's part of me and that's my legacy to the world, you know? And people feel that very, very strongly. I have to leave part of me behind and that part of me is a child. I have to leave a child on this earth, you know, to feel that my life was worthwhile and that I existed. And, you know, you don't want to get to be the age where you can't have kids and then have that feeling come on very strong. I never had a whole lot of interest in having kids because I was um, was 15 and a half when my sister was born. So, you know, I took care of her. I knew what it was like. That was my child, Mary. (laughs) Um, Never had a, a lot of wish for kids. But then, you know, different people are different. And, they, you know, I really want a child and... You know, to give my name to and to pass on the heritage and to give the family, you know, mementos, all those things that you cherish so much that sit up at the top of the closet for most of your life. But, you know, you have to have a child to give them to. Um, you know, so it's good to think about all these different kinds of things and, and sort through them and say, you know, how do I feel about this? And when I get to that age, what kind of person do I want to be? Am I going to feel like I missed out on something, doing something in my life, you know, when I'm young? And what's that thing that I feel so strongly that I want to do? And is it really worth doing? Or is monastic life more valuable? And you know, these, these kinds of things. So I think it's good to imagine ourselves at different points in our life like that. And, you know, it's a good reflection. 